practice of meditation can be understood as an investigation of who we are, investigation of all the different levels of our experience. It's an investigation of our bodies, which we accomplish through attention to the breath, through attention to the movement of the body, through attention to the awareness of the increasing, increasingly subtle energies that we begin to perceive. As the practice deepens, the whole sense of the solidity of the body begins to dissolve and we begin to experience it more as an energy field in increasingly refined ways. Meditation is an, an investigation of our minds, of thoughts and feelings and emotions and intuitions. It's an investigation of the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness. What is this mystery of awareness? What is it that knows? It's an investigation of how the mind creates suffering for ourselves, for other people, how suffering is created in the world. And it's also an investigation of the possibility and the taste of freedom. How can we actually be free? Throughout the retreat, when we use the word mind in the Buddhist sense, keep in mind that we're using this word in a very enlarged sense. But usually in the West, we think of mind as referring to intellect, you know, or the brain perhaps. But mind in the Buddhist sense is much larger. And it's really the conglomeration of the meaning heart-mind. You know, thoughts, feelings, emotions, consciousness itself. Stillness, silence is all part of what we include in mind. And many of you know that in some Asian languages even, the word for heart and mind is the same word. It's only in English or in English that we've created this duality. So when you hear mind, think big you know, and all-inclusive. What becomes very <coughs> apparent through this investigation of our body, heart, mind is that even though our stories, <coughs> our particular personal histories are all different, the essential nature of this body-mind is exactly the same in all of us. When there's suffering in the body, there's pain in the back, pain in the knees, some disease, the feelings of sadness, or anger, or love, or compassion, it's the same feeling, the same experience in each one of us. The nature of anger doesn't change. The nature of happiness. And it's the same now as it was in the time of the Buddha. This is one of the reasons that the Dharma is called timeless. Because the truth, the essential truth of things doesn't change. Now, an important correlation, an important implication of this timelessness of the Dharma 
is that when we understand ourselves deeply and well, we automatically and naturally understand everyone else. Because we understand the common nature of all these experiences. There are two perspectives that we can bring to practice that complement and illuminate each other. And they're very helpful perspectives to understand as we get into the retreat and settle into the practice more. The first of these perspectives is the understanding of meditation as being a science of the mind. The power of the Buddha's teachings and the power of his enlightenment was that he saw so clearly and so deeply and so incisively how things worked. He saw the nature of the mind and its workings, the nature of the body and its workings. He saw what led to suffering. He saw what led to freedom. Our lives are not unfolding by chance or by accident. There is a lawfulness to the unfolding experience of our lives. And in fact, <coughs> excuse me, one of the meanings of the word dharma, dharma is a Sanskrit word, or dhamma in Pali, it means law, or the law, the way things are, the truth of things. Our lives are unfolding lawfully, according to the dharma. And one of the most important laws governing the unfolding and there are many, but one of the most critical ones for our understanding is the law of cause and effect that experiences in each one of us and in the world, experiences arise because of certain causes and conditions. And if the conditions are not there, the experience doesn't happen. Now, it's easy to see this law of cause and effect at work in the physical world. Just one simple example, which we're all very well aware of now. When we pollute the environment in all the ways that we do, the water and the air and the ground, when we pollute it, there are consequences. There's a cause and an effect. And the effect is not good. It's unwholesome. It's unskillful. It causes us suffering. When we don't pollute, when we take care of the environment, that also is a cause with a certain effect. And we live with greater ease, greater health, greater well-being. <clears throat> What's so amazing is that As a culture, as a society, it's taken so long for us to figure this out. (laughs) Because from one perspective, it's so amazingly obvious that things have effects. But we can be so blinded (coughs) by our desires or our greed or our fear that we don't pay attention, we don't see it. (coughs) Just as there are physical laws in nature, the Buddha pointed out the laws of the mind. 
how cause and effect works in the unfolding of our mind's activities. And he called this, as you know, he called this the law of karma. That our actions have consequences and that the most important component determining the consequences for us in our lives is the quality of motivation behind the act. Now there's one saying in Buddhism which if you could remember just a few things this is one of them worth remembering. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. Can we really take that to heart? That everything rests on the tip of motivation. The consequences of our actions rests on the motive behind them. This is a very powerful wake-up call for us to pay attention to our motives, to understand them, to purify them. When we act motivated by greed, or desire, or ill will, or anger, or hatred, or fear, or ignorance, the consequence of that is some kind of suffering. That's what comes back to us as a result. When we act motivated by a feeling of generosity, of kindness, of love, of compassion, of wisdom, that's, that motive, is this, those motives are the seeds of happiness coming back to us. Now it's so easy to hear this and know this intellectually or conceptually, yeah, that sounds right, and then not to do anything with it. The Buddha was pointing out for us, this is a very important quality to understand deeply within ourselves. Aspect of motivation. The reason it's so important that we practice mindfulness, we practice awareness, in order to understand and purify our motives, is because the force of habit is so incredibly strong in the mind. And in some way, it's an incredibly strong force in nature, although it's called something else. Some years ago, I was reading a book by Rupert Sheldrake, a biologist. He had a concept which was fascinating to me. He called it morphic resonance. And I don't have much of a scientific background, but what he was saying was, from his study of in biology, you know, in the natural sciences, that once something happens in nature, even if it has never happened before for t- thousands or tens of thousands of years, once an event has happened in nature, it becomes easier for it to happen again. And you see a sudden proliferation of that particular event in the world. And when I read that, it just struck me as being so resonant with how our minds work. Every act we do becomes easier. It becomes easier to do that same act again, whether skillful or unskillful. Such is the force of habit 
a tremendously powerful tendency. So if we understand this, we start paying attention through mindfulness, through awareness. Well, what states of mind are we cultivating? What are we practicing? In our activities, in our relationships, in our speech. Genuine wisdom understands the relationship between action and result. It's like when we don't have wisdom, we simply act, think, this is not going to have consequences. And we lead foolish lives. It's wisdom that really understands and investigates this relationship between action and its result. And it's not always obvious. Because sometimes pleasure or gratification in the moment actually lead to a lot of suffering. And when we look at all the kinds of addictions that we and others have, it may provide a momentary pleasure, momentary happiness, but it's leading to suffering. And likewise, some things that are difficult in the moment can actually lead to happiness. Like the first day of a retreat. You know, she probably had many kinds of difficulties today, in the body, in the mind, and yet it's in the service of something that's very noble and conducive to genuine well-being. Or when it's difficult to be generous, and we do it anyway, or it's difficult to restrain from wrong speech, even in the moment of enticement, but we actually refrain from it. These are things that may be difficult or uncomfortable in the moment that are for our well-being. In this regard, the Buddha talked of two kinds of happiness. And I want to read something from the suttas because when I first read it, it was so striking to me. In terms of providing a different reference point for our choices than we usually have. This is what the Buddha said. When I discovered that in pursuit of such happiness, unwholesome states of mind increased and wholesome states decreased, then that happiness is to be avoided. And when I observed unwholesome states decreasing and wholesome states increasing, then that happiness is to be sought after. So often in our lives, in our society, we stay on the superficial level of things and we might think, yeah, happiness is great. Let's, Let's be happy without a further investigation, a further discrimination, well, in the pursuit of that happiness, what actually is being developed in our minds? Is it skillful states of mind? Is it unskillful? That then becomes the reference point, not the happiness. Well, that's a very different way of really looking at our lives. And it challenges us to know what's happening in our minds. 
to know what qualities are being developed. The great implication contained in the Dharma, Dharma here means the lawfulness of things, because our lives and our experiences are happening lawfully, arising out of conditions, the implication of this is that we can each undertake this journey of awakening for ourselves because it is a lawful process. As Sharon mentioned last night, it's not simply restricted to a few lucky people who happen to have the enlightenment gene. And it's not a question of simply believing what somebody says about it. Each one of us can investigate, can explore, can become mindful so that we understand, so that we journey to awakening. When I first went to India, I, was, I had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand and gotten a little bit interested in the practice and in meditation, came back to America, tried to practice by myself, realized very quickly I needed a teacher. So I was just getting very confused. So I went back to Asia and ended up in India. Finally, after a little wandering about, met my first teacher, Munindraji, in Bodh Gaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And what hooked me when I first met him was something he said, and it was so simple and so direct, but it made so much sense to me. It was such common sense. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. (laughs) There were no big rituals, no beliefs, no ceremonies. If you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. How else can we understand it? That's what we're doing here. That's what we've gathered to do, to develop the tools of this observation. So meditation as a science of mind means we refine these skills of attentiveness. We learn how to observe carefully because as you've probably seen from this first day of the retreat, for most of us, it's not as if we sit down and our minds are immediately totally concentrated, lucid, clear. We need to train in a certain way. And the methodology for this training is very clear and very simple. The first of the tools of practice that we use, and they are so simple, which I think is what gives them their power, is the simplicity of the form of sitting and walking. Now you're going to leave the retreat and you'll go back to your friends and family. Well, what did you do? I sat, I walked, I sat, I walked. Not much. And yet in the simplicity of that form, it reveals how much is going on, how much is going on inside. You know, we use a basic primary object like the breath or the 
walking, the movement of walking. And we simply keep bringing the mind back again and again. Another one of Munindra's wonderful lines of teaching, illustrating the utter simplicity of this undertaking. If ever you get confused about what you should be doing or what the instructions are, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.